The following is a sermon from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information and resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Good morning. We'll be reading from 1 Corinthians, all of chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one near you in the pew. And if you don't have your own Bible at home, please feel free to take one of these pew Bibles with you as a gift from Park Church. And if you're using a pew Bible, you can find today's scripture reading on page 896. That's 896. Hey, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future are all yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. This is the word of the Lord. 
Good. My name is Joel. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. Uh, we're so grateful that you all have joined us today. Um, we are in week two of Lent. Uh, if you are familiar with the Christian calendar, uh, it's a wonderful season that's marked by generosity, by repentance, by self-examination of turning to God again and again and again. Um, and we try to practice this every year on turning our attention and our affections to Jesus and following him and his way of life. A couple ways uh, that you can participate in Lent, uh, if you haven't before with us before, or if you have. Um, if you've joined us on Wednesdays for lunch, right over there in the side gallery, we have a sh- uh, prayer time from 12 to 12.45 p.m. Uh, we pray together. We invite people to fast from food and spend time instead feasting on God through prayer. So we have a group of probably generally about like 15 to 40 people over there in the side. We'd love for you to join us, even if it's just once during the season of Lent. Uh, so consider that. Mark that on your calendars. Uh, maybe just say, you know, remind me on Wednesday morning to fast from food and go to prayer. You know, whatever it is, um, help, help yourself by having Siri uh, schedule you out on those things. Um, another thing, too, that I want to mention is that um, Isa McCauley wrote a book called Lent. Um, and this is for those who have never heard of Lent. Uh, we say at Park that we are informed, not ruled by tradition. So some of you are like, man, I don't want to practice anything to do with the Christian calendar. That's fine. We just say, hey, figure out the Bible does call you to repentance and to generosity and to prayer. So figure out how to do all of those things. But if you want to know more about the season of Lent, check this book out. We have it over in the resources over there. Um, this is a super helpful read. Uh, strongly encouraged. All right. We are uh, in a series through the book of 1 Corinthians called Messy Church, Risen Lord. It's our fourth week in this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. Um, And as we read earlier, we're in chapter 3. I want to say this about the Bible. Uh, We love the Bible here at Park Church. We love reading it. We love studying it. We love meditating on it. We love asking God what he has for us in his word. We believe that God's word, he speaks to us by his spirit. And we want to be attentive to him and come when we come to the Word of God with expectation, not just a roteness, okay, got it, got it, okay, whatever. But we believe that God speaks through His Word. We want to love the Word of God, in particular the ways that we pay attention to it and try to be, kind of hold it up as a mirror to ourselves and also a lens through which we see all things. Uh, these are no mere words. These are the very words of God to us. So we want to treat these words with respect. Um, it's, it's why after we read it, we say, Thanks be to God, that God is not silent, but we believe that he speaks to us, and the scriptures are one of the main ways that he speaks to his kids. And so last week at the end of chapter two, we saw that we can only discern or figure out the things of God by the spirit of God, that we don't just read these things out and just kind of by like worldly sophistication and intelligence, do we figure all these things out and then we're transformed? We believe that we need the Spirit of God to shape us to be the people of God. So I want to pray for us as we jump into 1 Corinthians 13 and asking that the Holy Spirit would actually shape us in helpful ways today. So would you pray with me right now? Holy Spirit, we ask uh, that you would shape us by your word. We believe that you spoke these words to the church in Corinth, and we believe that you continue to speak to us by your spirit. And so we invite you to to work in us. We ask that we would be fertile ground for your word, that today your word would be planted in us, that it would bear fruit, that it would bear much fruit in our lives, um, that you would open our ears to hear from you, that you open our eyes to see you, that you open our, our hearts and our lives to respond to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
I'm going to try to catch us up uh, on where we've been in 1 Corinthians. It's almost like Paul's plane has been circling up high in the sky uh, for the last couple of chapters. He's greeted them. He's thanked God uh, for them. He's briefly mentioned some rumors of diversity, not diversity, of, of uh, division in the church. He then talks about the cross and that the cross is foolishness to the Greeks. It's, it's uh, weakness to the Jews. And then it's wisdom and power and salvation to others. As he proceeds on through chapter 2, uh, he talks about not wanting to play the Corinthian word game. He doesn't want to like try to work on his eloquent TED talk and try to impress people and gather a following. He wants to keep his message simple and focused on the undiluted, life-changing message of Jesus and the cross. And then he closes out the chapter, as I just mentioned, talking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And he talks about two kinds of people. He says there's the natural person that doesn't have the Spirit and doesn't understand the things of the Spirit. And then he talks about the spiritual person. The spiritual person. Now, when we hear spiritual person, we think of like Denver. It's like, oh, I'm spiritual. I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. And that's not what Paul has in mind here. He has less in mind a spiritual person that would kind of fit in here in Denver and more the spiritual person that's been awakened by the Spirit, spiritual, um, by the Spirit himself and is awakening us to the things of God and in Jesus. And that's Christian spirituality. They've seen the beauty of Jesus and what he's done and are learning to live a life in response to him. And so much so, if you look back, if you look in the Bible right before chapter 3, look at the last sentence of chapter 2. It says, after he's talking about this ministry of the Holy Spirit, so by the Spirit, he says, but we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. They've been given the mind of Christ. Imagine for me, for a moment, if you woke up tomorrow morning and said, by the Spirit of God, I have the mind of Christ, and I'm going to live my day and think Jesus' thoughts through my day and see as he sees. Imagine what kind of presence and effect that would have in your lives. It would change everything. We have the mind of Christ. We are not natural people. We are spiritual people who have the mind of Christ. But for all the grandiosity of chapter 2 and the Spirit's ministry, Paul leads out in chapter 3 with one word. What does he say? But, but, let's read it together. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, but you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human or merely carnal? So this is Paul's predicament as he opens up chapter 3. He's stumped, he's scratching his head because based on his very own categories that he listed off in chapter 2 of the natural person and the spiritual person, He's not seen either in them. He calls them brothers and sisters. So we see that they're in the family of God. To be in the family, we know that they're filled with the Spirit. We're going to see this later on in 1 Corinthians. We see in Romans 8 that anyone without the Spirit actually isn't a Christian. He's confused because of this tension that he's feeling. He's like, you are not spiritless, but you're also not Spirit-led. You're not Spirit-less, but you're not Spirit-led. Led. There's something about you that's not being led and transformed by the Spirit of God. In a sense, he's saying, you're not the spiritual person. You are the unspiritual Christian. They are growing up outwardly, but not inwardly in their character and their spirituality. And so what a hard truth that though Christians are filled with the Spirit of God, 
that doesn't automatically mean that you are emulating Christ in your life, that you're growing up into maturity in him. And so Paul is saying this, I don't know what to make of you, Corinthians. Amongst parents, uh, there are books, there are websites, there are resources uh, for making sure that your kids are developmentally on track, right? So looking at all these factors of like physicality, um, uh, emotional th- uh, signs, like social things, academic things, where should your kids be based on your behaviors and signs when they're at this age? What should the marker or the milestone be at that moment in time? And if they're not there, how do you kind of raise your kid up so that they are on track and ultimately like a fully functioning like member of society as they grow older, right? In a sense, Paul is holding up a spiritual growth chart, a spiritual on-track chart, and he's saying, church in Corinth, you're not on track. Your spiritual growth is far from keeping up with your physical growth. You're chronologically growing older, but spiritually, you've stalled out. This comes and hits hard on people who think of themselves as sophisticated, right? In a sense, he's saying, you're a man baby. You're a man child. Listen to some of the descriptions he uses in the passage we just read. People of the flesh. He's talking to the church. You're people of the flesh. Infants in Christ. You're babies. Those not ready for solid food. Still of the flesh. Marked by jealousy and strife. Behaving only in human ways. Being merely human. Almost all of these descriptions and these mentions of the flesh show an unhealthy independence from the ways of God and a deep alliance, alliance to Corinth, not to Christ. There's a devotedness to human drives, sinful divisions, not a drive for the things of the Spirit. The church in Corinth thought that they were doing pretty well. They're like, I feel like I'm doing pretty well. They got the letter from Paul. He's like thanking God for them. I'm like, yeah, we're doing all right. And then suddenly Paul says, think again. I'm putting you back on a milk-only diet. If you want to put it in skiing or snowboarding terms for you Coloradans, the Corinthians thought they should be racing down double black diamonds, and Paul is marching them back down to the bunny hill to learn the basics because they're nowhere near ready. In this case, one major way that their immaturity is showing itself is their divisions inside the church. They were attaching themselves to particular teachers instead of to Christ himself. One of them is saying, I'm of Paul. And they're like, oh, not, I'm not into Paul. Paul is so like last summer. I'm into Apollos. He's amazing, right? If you think you're immune to this sort of behavior, I want to invite you to think again. Look around at society. Are we not a division-ridden culture? We're inundated by division. The world and the church do this in a bunch of random ways, some small and not necessarily sinful, but we do it nonetheless. We can joke around about it, but you can say, man, preachers, even here at Park, I am of Gary. I love his sermons, right? Somebody else, oh, I am of Jason, his long beard and his soft words, you know, shorter sermons, (laughs) whatever it is. Others of you are like, I really am of Neil because I love his quotes and he just hits me in an intellectual level that Gary just doesn't hit me on, you know? <laughs> whatever, whatever it is. Some of you are like, man, I love an exegetical preaching that just preaches the gospel, doesn't give you any implications, max three verses at a time. We just go in deep. Others of you are like, no, I love these topical sermons and where we go, I am of topical sermons. When it comes to worship music, I am of Mav City or I am of Elevation or I am of 
hymns. I don't do that stuff, right? When it comes to podcasting, we have our favorite spiritual podcast. Some of you say, I am of John Mark Comer. I am of Practicing the Way. Others of you say, John Mark Comer. I'm of John Piper. He's been around for a long time. Others of you say, I've, I've graduated from all of that. I am of Richard Rohr, right? Whatever it is, we do it with churches. I am of Park Church. Nope, I am of Fellowship. I am of the Heights. I am of Fill in the Blank Church. We do it with our hobbies. I am of ski, I am of snowboard, I'm of epic, I'm of icon. We do it with our politics. I'm of the elephant, I'm of the donkey, I am of the eagle, which I looked up and it's the independent animal. <laughs> with our news stations, I'm of Fox News, I'm of CNN. Oh no, I'm of this other one. You can only follow them on Instagram and they're totally unbiased. We saw it uh, in our country. I am of Black Lives Matter. I am of Blue Lives Matter. Forget those two. I am of All Lives Matter. We saw it in the pandemic. I am of the mask. I am of the naked face. I am of the jab. I am of the freedom to choose. We could go on and on and on. And we put these divisions on signs. We put them in our yards. And we say, this is where I draw the line. It almost seems as if we were wired for division and tribalism and controversy and reactivity and in turn separating ourselves from anybody that doesn't think and live the ways that we live and think. The problem in Corinth wasn't opinions but rather the division that was happening over the opinions and the preferences. Look at the interactions online on Facebook or Twitter X as a small micro version of this. It's depressing. When you click, sometimes you can click on the comments and you, all of a sudden you're like, oh no. Like the more I read, the more depressed I get. Paul says that all of this is a sign not of maturity and refined, sophisticated taste, but rather immaturity and humanity apart from God. It's not a sign that they had the mind of Christ, but rather we've taken on the mind of Corinth and their sinful flesh. Uh, this bright book right here, uh, Paul Tripp wrote a book called Reactivity, and it's all about uh, the, how the gospel transforms our actions and reactions. And so even as you consider your own life, asking you a question, how do you react to others when they disagree with you? In person? Online? What sort of presence do you have? And does the cross shape your interactions with others? I want to read this quote from this book. It says this, I'm convinced that many of the theological battles on Twitter are motivated not by a love for theology, after all, but by self-glory. If you find a place, uh, sorry, if you find pleasure in the battle and you love the kill, it's probably not God's glory that's driving you because he is slow to anger and lavish in love. If tenderness, gentleness, kindness, patience, and love seem like weakness to you, it's doubtful that the glory of God is shaping how you act, react, and respond. I think the toxic reactivity often towards other Christians on social media is a constant warning to us that the kingdom of self does a good job of masquerading as the kingdom of God. May we be humble enough to search our hearts. Perhaps as we post, it is not God we are serving after all. Friends, I want to say this to you. We are prone to wander in that word of that famous hymn, but we are prone to wander, and one of the ways we're prone to wander is through divisions, through separating ourselves from others that think differently. 
And so where do we go from here? In this passage, Paul, in his love, chooses to confront them. He's not a peacekeeper and just trying to keep them happy and satisfied. Paul chooses to confront them. He sees sin and brokenness. Instead of ignoring it, he confronts it head on. But notice his tone. He doesn't just confront them. He confronts them in love. He doesn't blow them up. He doesn't say, enemies, traitors, block. You know, he doesn't cancel them. He calls them brothers and sisters. This word, it says, but I brothers, right? It's this Greek word for Adelphoi. It comes from the Greek Delphus, which means womb. It's saying you are siblings of one another. It's a, tr- it's a term of affection and endearment. You're the family of God, and yet you're acting like you're part of opposing tribes or teams. Be who you are, family of God. You are called to unity, not to division. Don't divide based on popularity or teaching preferences or political groups or influencers like others, but rather be united as a family of God under your Father in heaven. And he's in an attempt to kind of help them understand what he's saying and dig deep into their souls, Paul gives them three simple but powerful visual metaphors for what he's talking about and how we are to understand the church. And so that's going to be the flow for the rest of our time. And we're going to look at each of these metaphors and what they teach us about the church. And then in turn, how to move away from our divisions toward unity. So metaphor number one, the church as God's field. Verses five through nine, let's read that together. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos waters, but watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field. We are God's field. All right, how does this speak to Corinth? It seems as if the church in Corinth forgot whose field the church was. They're like, it's Paul's field. Oh, no, it's Apollos' field. They forgot the plot line of the story that they were in. This is God's piece of land. It belongs to him. God was raising up and assigning gifted leaders to serve on his plot of land, but the church in Corinth seemed to be getting things backward. They thought it was their plot of land or their leader's plot of land. Somehow the leaders were taking the limelight from God himself. There is a weird celebrity culture, not just in the world, but also in the church, and it's present in me as well. I often see somebody that's influenced me spiritually, and it's almost as if I were looking at a professional athlete or a movie star. I went to, I saw a few people from our church who went to the John Mark Comer, like, book release here in Denver, and it's funny. It's like, all of a sudden, I'm there just sitting down. All of a sudden, I see John Mark Comer walk by. I'm like, oh my gosh, there's John Mark Comer. It's like, yes, it's John Mark Comer. He's serving the church. That's who he is, right? And yet suddenly I'm like, oh my gosh, there he is in person. It's not John Mark Comer's field. It's not any of our teachers' field. It is God's field, and they are his servants. Paul situates the leaders in the church not as masters, not as celebrities, not as superstars meant to be worshipped, but rather he situates them as servants. He calls us as servants, to put Jesus on the pedestal, not put the servants on the pedestal. Leaders are meant to be a lot more like John the Baptist. If you remember, he said, Jesus must increase, I must what? 
decrease. Celebrity culture says, I must increase. I must increase. All my followers must increase. All my views must increase. People need to like me. I'm garnering attention to myself. And yet Jesus says, look at me. And my servants are meant to shine a light on who I am, not themselves. Imagine somebody at a play who's shining a spotlight, right, on this play from the back. And all of a sudden, they just flip it up and turn it on their face. Be like ridiculous, right? Because that's not the point of it, right? And yet that's often what we are doing when we try to draw attention to ourselves. Consider a wedding, right? Uh, the best man is there to serve the groom and help ensure that things are running smoothly in this wedding. Imagine for a moment a best man who's standing over there off to the side, the groom and the bride are there, and then all of a sudden, like the best man starts like kind of just poking, poking his face out, starts like looking at the bride and being like, what's up, girl? It like sounds ridiculous, right? And we say, yeah, that best man is the worst man, right? Because that's, that's not what their role was. They're, they're, they're trying to draw the attention of, of, of the groom to the bride and keep the, the stare there in a healthy way, right? The best man is the invisible man or the invisible woman, the one that doesn't draw attention to themselves. And that's what Paul is pointing out in this. Note this, that God is responsible for the growth in this field. And that's a liberating thought for me. So often I try to control things and work things, and yet God is responsible for the growth. Uh, my daughter, Tally, she had a science project in middle school, and she decided to uh, do a bunch of chia seeds in a bunch of different contexts. So she did some, just planting them, and then put some water in there. And then another one, I think she did like Mountain Dew and different things, right? And yet, ultimately, at the end of the day, none of the chia seeds grew, and they all died. She had to change her science project. But often, there's, there's, like a, there's like a liberating thing when you realize, like a farmer back in the day, I can control some elements, but I can't control it all. Ultimately, God is the one that has to bring the growth. And so we, we plant seeds, we water them, we do our work, and yet we trust God for the growth. This is God's field, and it's God's growth that he's doing in and through the work of the church. In Psalm 127, Solomon said this, unless the Lord builds a house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. I think if Paul wrote his own version of this, he would say, unless the Lord grows the field, those who sow and water will harvest in vain. Next metaphor. Metaphor number two. The church as God's building. The church as God's building. Uh, Verse 9 ends with saying, you are God's field. Then he says, God's building. Verse 10 says this. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. And someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on uh, the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's uh, work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire." So Paul is, is talking about this, this field, and then suddenly he's like, you know what? Maybe this agricultural metaphor isn't hitting these people. They're in an urban context. Let me just switch the analogy a little bit here. Well, let's talk about an architectural one. Let's talk about buildings instead of farms, right? Um, I don't know if you're like me, but I couldn't read this passage and not think about the three little pigs. 
What's the premise of this story? Uh, you know, they each build their house with different materials, right? One with hay, one with sticks, one with bricks. And then what happens? This big bag wolf comes onto the scene. He comes to huff and puff and blow each of their houses down. He's successful on the first two, but he fails on the third account. Why? Because of the materials that were used. They lasted. In a similar way that Paul is saying that while the church is built on the foundation of Jesus Christ, different materials can be built on top of this foundation. Some are flimsy, some are combustible, others are sturdy and fireproof, fireproof and long-lasting. Maybe from the outside you can't tell as much, You're like, looks pretty good, looks pretty sturdy, right? But the sad truth is that many of these materials that we build with which on the foundation of Jesus won't last. Paul tells us that we'll find out which kinds of materials were used on what's called, what he calls the day, the capital D, day, right? There's no way to dive into all that this day is, but to keep it short, in the rest of Scripture, the day is the day of Christ's return where he comes back as judge and savior. It's a day that exposes what's been done on the earth, both by Christians and by non-Christians. We see judgment for believers and what they do in 2 Corinthians 5.10, and then also in Revelation 20, 11 through 15. It's the great light switch that God turns on and says, look at what's been done. Look at what was in your heart. For the Christian, this isn't about eternal life or being with God forever, but rather seeing if what we're building with in our lives is of eternal value. Does it burn up or does it last? Is the stuff that we're building sort of an Ikea-quality furniture that barely does the job and that we throw away at the end of its life cycle? Or is it something sturdier that we're building that we could pass on to the next generation and the generation after that and the generation after that? I want to be clear. What Paul is advocating for here is less of what the perfect material is or what programs we need to incorporate into our churches to make sure it's gold and silver and precious materials, but rather more of how the material is brought about. Look back with me in verse 10 of chapter 3. Let each one take care how he builds about. It's not what, it's how. How is he building? It's on the foundation of Jesus. So that's, that's like the common ground. It's like it needs to be built on Jesus. But how are we building? Are we building in divisive ways, in ways that are for self-glory? Are we building on the foundation of Jesus for his glory? What are we building on? Are we building in love, a love for Jesus, a love for the church? Are we, do, are we doing this in a competitive nature? Are we building up our own fame? Or are we calling to people to, to look to the fame of Jesus? If it's the first one, if you're trying to build out your own fame, the sad news is that God's exposing fire, his divine huffing and his divine puffing will reveal what it was, which is nothing. It's going to burn up. It's going to disappear because it was vapor. You are after your own glory, and that won't last. God's glory goes on forever and ever. And so we build on that foundation, and we point people to God and his glory. Our work ends up revealing that it's full of love and substance. And in turn, we receive a reward, which is the voice of God himself, saying, well done, good and faithful. Notice what he says, servant. Well done, good and faithful servant. You're not a celebrity. You are God's servant. I want to say this as, as clearly as I can to each of you. I think we will be surprised by what's revealed on the day. So many of us uh, serve God in ways that are unseen, in ways that are thankless, uh, and also, we kind of get in our own heads and we say, man, the work that I'm doing is just wood, hair, straw. It's going to burn up. Nobody sees it. And that's simply not the case. Think of the parents 
serving their kids relentlessly, gospel community leaders serving their groups week in and week out, park kids, teachers holding little babies during the services, the hospitality, putting out coffee for other people, employees working hard in unseen ways, employers doing the same, teachers who might feel unseen, underpaid, and wonder if their jobs even matter, students that are seeking to love fellow students, to learn and grow and look like Jesus in their schools, Grandparents loving their grandkids in whatever role God has put you, whatever circles of influence God has put you in to build on the foundation of Jesus, serve out of love for Jesus and a love for his bride. And I want to say this, this is the gold. This is the silver. These are the precious jewels. Third metaphor, the church as God's temple. The building metaphor uh, doesn't end, but rather gets more specific. The church isn't merely a vague building on some city street. It's a sacred building. It's God's temple itself. Verses 16 and 17 say this. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. I love Paul's enthusiastic emotional tone right from the beginning. Do you not know that you are God's temple? This is foundational Christianity. Church in Corinth, this is milk. Get it right. Another observation that's hard for us to pick up in English. We normally read the word you and we think of it as an individual. But in the Greek, it's a plural you. So if you're from the South, you know about the word y'all, right? It's a, and Paul is saying, do you not know that y'all are the temple of God. Y'all together, you, you that are trying to divide according to teachers, y'all are the temple of God together, not separated, but together. You are his temple filled with his spirit. Not just one of you, not just one particular group of you, not just the elite, not just the spiritually enlightened ones, but all of you are God's temple. Paul is trying to tear down this weird division that's been brought about. We are God's temple together. On my street, and also all throughout Denver, it's become popular to buy a single kind of residence and then scrape it, and then you build like the bougie two to three floor like duplex, right? And then just sell it for try. You make a ton of money, it's great. Developers are pumped on this, right? And I, I need you to follow this analogy with me for a moment, right? In a sense, Paul was witnessing this sort of thing happening in the church. What do I mean? They come to the temple of God and they say, you know what? I'm not into these kind of people. I want to build a duplex of sorts and I'm gonna stay over here with my kind of people that think like me and behave like me and then the other ones can be on the other side. So we're not even talking about, you know, totally separate buildings. We're in a duplex at least. I wanna say this, there are no duplexes, there are no triplexes, there are no quadplexes in the kingdom of God, just a temple. And it's God's temple. It's not yours. You don't get to call who's in and who's out. God is the determiner of those things. It's built on the foundation of Jesus. While we feel God's, uh, sorry, while we feel God's uh, passion for his church, we see it in the way that he protects his church. The church is no insignificant thing to God. The church is his treasured possession. It's God's temple. God says, if any of you self-glorifying, divisive teachers, or anyone for that matter, are seeking to destroy my church, guess what? I'm going to destroy you. It's a strong language, but it's a demonstration of God's love for his people. In his book, The Cross, uh, D.A. Carson says this. And it's a quote that should be in there. I can read it to you. It's great. 
Ah, here we are. Okay, the ways of destroying the church are many and colorful. Raw factionalism will do it. Rank heresy will do it. Taking your eyes off the cross and letting other more peripheral matters will dominate the agenda will do it. Admittedly more slowly than frank heresy, but just as effectively on the long haul. God's saying, don't play around with or take my bride and body lightly. The church is holy, which means set apart. The church is different. God is her protector. God is her defender. And God will bring down anyone who seeks to bring down the church. We need to take the unity of the church seriously as well. I want to try to speak to us in this moment too. Uh, there's some rightful critique of the church. And I, and I think Paul is very okay with critique. We see that here. But I want to ask you to look in a mirror and say, how do I speak about the church at large? Don't tear down the bride with your words. Don't gossip. Don't quarrel. Don't devalue her. Don't cancel her. Confront the church in love like Paul did, but also cherish her. I want to say this. The church is God's holy, beloved temple. In closing, if all these metaphors are true, what does it all mean? I want to read in uh, verse 18 through the end. He says this. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. So God is smarter than them, right? And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. Why? For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. Paul says, don't self-deceive. You're living in a falsity through your lame, trivial divisions, and what is the solution? It seems to be a twofold strategy. The first one, we read it in uh, verse 18. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. The first thing is this. Admit that you're not as smart as you think you are. Admit that you have much to learn, that you're all of us are learners. We're all learning. We have plenty to learn. Corinth wants you to think of yourself as higher or smarter and assert yourself over people. And yet Christ calls us to humility, to become a fool in the eyes of the world and cling to his cross over any other allegiance. The second thing, and it's interesting, it's, um, it's right here where it says, let no one boast in men why? For all things are yours. All things are yours. Do you think that way? Imagine if each of us thought that way. I said if we woke up with the mind of Christ, imagine if each of us woke up and thought, God, all things are mine. I've been, I've been blessed in the heavenly places with every spiritual blessing today, right now. Well, after you look at Instagram or whatever social media thing, is your thought, man, all things are mine. I am so content with my life and the way things are going. Or you're like, man, I'm jealous of that person's life. I wish my life could be more like this. I wish my life was filled with less with this and more of this. And yet Paul comes to these people who are trying to like grasp their way and get things. And he says this, he says, all things are yours. For all the wisdom, all the power, all the grasping and the upward mobility they were trying to achieve in Corinth, boasting the hippest, most eloquent preachers and ultimately trying to prove themselves worthy of honor, and love, Paul says, you actually have all of it right now. You have it right now in Jesus. Stop boasting in men or in things. Boast in Christ. This is the negative something he already called him to do earlier on in the letter. He says, boast in Christ. 
because in him you have all things. You're trying to find all of these other things and those things will not satisfy you. Paul takes this little slogan that they've adopted in separatist ways saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. And Paul flips it on its head and it says, all things are yours. You don't have to pick between Paul, you don't have to pick between Apollos, you don't have to pick between Cephas. All of the teachings have been given to me by them because they're servants in my field. Listen to them and learn from them. You have much to learn from them. Be more humble than you are. Not only did he give them teachers, but the world, life, death, the present, the future, all of it is yours in Christ. And I can't help but hear all of these other passages from Paul. Uh, Philippians 1.21, he says, for me to live is what? Christ. For me to die is? Gain. Romans 8, 38 through 39 says, for I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, or the future, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, on the foundation of Jesus alone, not on any other foundation. All of it is yours already. The world is yours, the life is yours, death is yours. The present is yours, the future is yours, all are ours, and we are Christ's, and Christ is God's. We can let our guards down, we can abandon our silly divisions, and boast together in Christ as a spirit-filled temple. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you uh, for your word. We thank you for the ways that you see into our souls and you know, the, you know the ways that we need to grow. You know the ways that we need to mature and we thank you for speaking to us and loving us enough to confront us. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, uh, through your word, would you help these things that we've just read about uh, be planted deeper into, into us? Would you water those things and ultimately we trust in you for their growth? We want to be the sort of field and building and temple that glorifies you, that's united. I pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. I want to invite the communion servers uh, to come on up. Uh, and just as they're doing that, I want to invite you to reflect for a moment. We prayed before, we asked the Holy Spirit to speak to us. And so if it's helpful, you can close your eyes. But I want to encourage you to talk to the Holy Spirit right now who's here with us who lives inside of you as a child of God, what is God speaking to you right now through his word? Maybe something that was highlighted. Maybe it's an encouragement. Maybe it's a conviction. Maybe it's some of the ways that you've been treating others. Maybe some divisions in your own life. What might God's invitation be for you today? Where are you boasting in men instead of Christ? What might God be speaking to you in this moment? Holy Spirit, uh, we love your word. Uh, we love the ways that you help us understand your ways more. And we ask that you would bury these truths in us and that they would grow and flourish 
and that we'd look more and more like you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. We get to uh, participate in the Lord's table together. It's at this table that we reject our naturally tribalistic ways and we embrace one family together. Uh, We come to one table hosted by one Savior as one body. Our communion is a time for all who've put their trust and faith in Jesus to remember and celebrate who Jesus is, what he's done, and that he's coming again and will throw even a bigger feast. It's a time to remember that what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.18 is true. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So even as you come to the table today, as you tear off the bread and dip it into the wine, it's the power of God for salvation. And just say, Spirit, help me understand this. Help me remind me that all things are mine in Christ. I don't need to boast in anyone else or anything else. I want to boast in you alone. In the words of the hymn, before the throne of God above, we come to the communion table knowing that we have a strong and perfect plea. It's not our own deeds. It's Jesus himself. Not a tribe, not a teacher. Jesus himself. Uh, We know that some of you aren't yet followers of Jesus here. Uh, Thank you for being here. We are so grateful that you're here. We want this to be a place that you can explore the claims of Jesus uh, in a safe place. Um, As you're working through your own questions, we will have a couple prayers up during the communion uh, time. That one is a prayer of searching and one is a prayer of belief. We say, where are you at? Open yourself up to God. Say, God, if you're real, would you reveal yourself to me? Or maybe today you're saying, I want to turn to Jesus because I believe he is the power of God for salvation today. If that's you today, please let us know. Until that point, we'd ask that you would hold off in communion until you can say, yes, Jesus is my only hope in life and in death. Uh, Before we take communion, uh, if you could please stand with me if you're able. We're going to read a prayer together. We've been reading this throughout our series. And why don't you read that with me? Lord, as we come to your table, we acknowledge that without you, we are a mess. Thank you for inviting us as we are and for your faithful love toward us. Open our eyes to the ways that we have been shaped more by our culture than by Christ. Forgive us and free us through the power of your crucifixion and transform us by your spirit through the power of your resurrection that we might be united as your holy people to reflect your love and glory to the world. Hey, thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and the joy of all people. More information and more resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Take care.